I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. We're reading a passage which we have um, covered over the last um, uh, few weeks, just fairly recently, looking at the concept of uh, the Shekinah glory. Uh, We're reading the same passage again today, where the focus will be more particularly on the tabernacle that God commanded the Israelites to build. So Exodus chapter 40, actually beginning at verse 17. Note the time frame here. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark. The testimony happens to be the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And he put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table, on the north side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in front of the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, when they did not set out, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word again, we pray for the working of your spirit. Apart from your Holy Spirit working in our hearts and minds to illuminate our understanding and then to motivate our obedience Uh, we would find the listening to your word and the reading of your word to be vain and useless. Lord God, uh, you yourself have 
connected together, your spirit and your word. So we're dependent upon your spirit as we come to your word, even as we are dependent upon you, almighty God, for all of life in every way. Bless us now, we would pray, so that our hearing of the word would be strengthening to us, enabling us to trust you more, and that ultimately it would bring the gladness of good news to our hearts, all that you've done for us in your son Jesus. In his name we would pray. Amen. So this morning we come to this passage once again, but specifically uh, we're coming to look at the tabernacle. Now, not the tabernacle in, 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 in the sense of looking at all the different aspects of the tabernacle. You know, there's the construction of the tabernacle, uh, there is the furniture of the tabernacle, there's all these different parts of the tabernacle which make together this whole picture of, of something that's going on here in Israel, uh, establishing the worship of the people of God uh, at this particular stage in, in the history of redemption. We're not going to look at all of these particulars, even though uh, many have and have found great fruit and have found great messages to present to people uh, out of all these different things because of the tremendous symbolism that's involved in each of these. What I want to do is focus upon the big picture. I want to focus upon what's going on when we look at the tabernacle in terms of its meaning and in terms of its ministry connected to Christ. Now, think through the time frame here. Three months after the Exodus, from the point of which they celebrated Passover, three months later, uh, they wind up at Mount Sinai. And then from Mount Sinai, when Moses gets all of the instructions and the commandments about the tabernacle, all of the stuff that you read in the, the latter part of the book of Exodus until you come to chapter 40, what we read today, beginning of verse 17. Nine months takes place. Nine months in which Moses and the people of God are involved in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, during that time, uh, Moses has been up on the mountain once, come down, gone up on the mountain again and come down, and he has uh, the, the, the commandments on two tablets of stone, and he has this ark which he specifically himself built prior to the final construction of the Ark that we know as the Ark of the Covenant. All of this has taken place, and, and we sometimes don't appreciate that what's been going on here has taken place the better part of a year from the time they first celebrated the Passover. The important thing is to recognize that something great and something different is happening in the plan of redemption. Something that hitherto has not taken place is happening uh, in the plan of redemption. And that's what I want us to focus on, to see how we have a, a new era of revelation. But in this new epoch of revelation, we have a new relationship that God is establishing with his people. Uh, the big thing that we're going to see here, uh, really the big idea is something like this. In the love of God for his people, God reveals that he desires to dwell with them. Now, I want to say something about that. For the first time in redemptive history, we find God expressing something far more than establishing his relationship. 
with those that he saves. Now he's saying to the people of God, I want to dwell with you. That's what I want us to look at. The focal point of God dwelling with his people is the tabernacle. We're going to look at how the tabernacle, the meaning of the tabernacle, is focused upon God dwelling with his people. And then the ministry of the tabernacle is going to focus upon how is it that God can dwell with his people. And then finally, to connect the tabernacle and its full meaning and full realization to Christ. So those ideas, the big idea, God desires to dwell with his people. The tabernacle is the focal point of God dwelling with his people in terms of its symbolic meaning. And the ministry of the tabernacle is the focal point of how it's possible for God to dwell with his people. And then connecting this to the person and work of Christ. Now to begin with, I want us to appreciate that the tabernacle symbolically, in terms of its meaning, represents God dwelling with his people. Now, to appreciate that, we've got to go back to the beginning. We've got to see uh, what is really taking place as an incredibly new, significant advance and development in redemptive history. So let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back to the garden. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, you have the picture of the Garden of Eden in which God is present with Adam and Eve to begin with. What we need to understand, though, is that if you look through the history of the themes and echoes of Eden all the way through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, and then as you see it pictured for us in Revelation 21 and 22, the concept of Eden and the Garden of Eden is this is God's dwelling place. This is God's home. This is God's house. This is where God dwells. And all through the Old Testament, there's reflections of Eden in terms of the concept of tabernacle and temple. So most Old Testament professors will say today, scholars will say today, in Eden, you have the original tabernacle, the original temple, the original dwelling place of God, and he creates image bearers to dwell there with him. And then he gives them the commission to take the knowledge of God and the presence of God Uh, by multiplying image bearers all over the world and taking, as it were, the Garden of Eden all over the world. That was the great mission. That's the great principle that's going on here. Eden was designed to be expanded, even as human beings were designed to bear God's image throughout the world. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. They are expelled from the Garden. Now, even though they are redeemed, you never find in the history of redemption from Adam to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, you never find from the fall of the human race in Genesis 3 all the way to we get to Exodus, you never find the concept that God is dwelling with his people. It's just not there. In fact, you get a different picture of what goes on in terms of God's working with his people during this time. The picture is something like this. God is in heaven, seated upon his throne, and he's very much concerned about what's happening upon the earth. 
And God comes down to visit. God comes down to see. God comes down and even spends time, but God always goes back to heaven. Uh, this, 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 This is a pattern. Noah doesn't have God dwelling with him on the ark. No, God comes down. God sees what's happening with the human race. God tells Noah, this is how you're to be saved through the the ark that you you were to build. And God speaks. And God's on the outside of the ark because God shuts the door of the ark. And then then when Noah gets out and Noah, Noah offers his sacrifices, God is up there smelling the savor of that propitiatory sacrifice that Noah burns for for God. It's always a picture of God up here. You see it especially at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 5 and verse 8, you have the Trinitarian God speaking to himself, and what does he say? Let us go down and see what is happening. The picture is God is up there, God sees, God comes down, and God judges and God does what he does. Time of Abraham. God calls Abraham. And you have these different stages in the life of Abraham and God coming and God revealing. Uh, You have it in Genesis 15 when God makes the covenant. But even there, the presence of God is symbolized by the the smoking flame, the fiery flame, and the the smoking oven. Uh, In Genesis chapter 17, God speaks to Abraham at the time of giving him the covenant of circumcision. He speaks and proclaims to Abraham, I'll be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I'll be a God to you and to your children. Genesis chapter 18, God shows up in a significant way. God shows up, uh, Moses describes it as three men who come to visit Abraham. But one of them takes clearly the, the formal presence of the Lord. And Abraham has this discussion with the Lord. Uh, In fact, toward the end of Genesis chapter 18, you have an incredible time in which Abraham is actually having a little debate with God over whether Sodom and Gomorrah should be be destroyed. You know, if there's 50, 45, 40, Lord, it comes down. If there are 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And, of course, God says, you know, if there are ten, I won't destroy the city. There are less than ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what's fascinating is at the end of this, we read in verse 33, and the Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. That is, God comes down, God visits, but God doesn't stay. God returns to his place. God isn't dwelling with his people. God isn't living with his people at this particular time. When God's visit is finished, God goes back up to his throne room, his place in heaven. So even though God has made this covenant, I will be your God, he has not promised in any way at all to dwell with his people. Uh, God has not come to dwell. Why? Well, in the history of redemption, nothing has changed since Adam and Eve were expelled from the presence of God. Why were they expelled? 
God is a holy God. God does not dwell with sin. God does not dwell with sinful human beings. Sinful human beings cannot be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. So God can come down. God can manifest himself. God can reveal himself. God can visit his people. But no man can be in the presence of God and dwell with God and live. It's not possible. Now, that's what we see so far in redemptive history until we come to the Exodus, until we come to this period of time. With Moses and the people of God, they undergo a redemption. Their exodus out of Egypt is described as a redemption. The relationship between God and Noah isn't described as a redemption, even though Noah is saved from the judgment that comes upon the world. The relationship between God and Abraham isn't described as a redemption, even though God commissions Abraham that in in and through him and his seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. So far, this concept of redemption has not yet been introduced into the plan of redemption in a way it's introduced now. God is calling his people out of Egypt, out of the bondage to Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They are being redeemed, and it's in the context of them being redeemed that God is going to enable them to... Well, actually, God is going to enable himself to be able to dwell with his people. And this is what the tabernacle is all about. How does God address the problem of sin when he is a holy, holy, holy God and he can't dwell with sinful human beings. So what does God say? Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them, he tells Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now sanctuary, there is a holy place. Let them make me a holy place that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, 45, 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God is specifically saying the purpose of the Exodus, the purpose of the redemption is that I might dwell with my people. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. This new development that's happening at Exodus is then integrated into the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's stated this way, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Now that is significant. God abhors our sin. But he doesn't make a distinction between the sinner and the sin. He abhors the sinner because of the sinner's sin. But he says here, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will mock among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So there we have this new development. I will dwell with you incorporated into the Abrahamic covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. In essence, God is revealing greater dimensions to his covenant that he makes with Abraham. You will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. We see this in the final blessing that uh, that 
that Moses gives to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land and before he, uh, before he dies. He says this, Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. When God dwells with you, the eternal God becomes your dwelling place. And underneath you are their everlasting arms. God dwells with his people that they would then be able to dwell in his presence. So that's the symbolic meaning of the tabernacle that is now being constructed where the Shekinah glory comes down and and fills this, this tabernacle, the presence of God, the meaning here, God desires and God is going to enable his dwelling with his people. But again, at this point, we have to say, the big problem remains. Sinful human beings, how can sinful human beings coexist, dwell with, be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? Even though God redeemed Adam and Eve, God didn't dwell with Adam and Eve over the next thousand years that they lived. Uh, Even though God loved Noah and saved Noah and his family, God didn't dwell with Noah and his family on the ark, nor thereafter. And even though God loved Abraham, God visited Abraham, but he didn't stay. He didn't stay. But now God is coming to his people and he's going to stay. But how is it possible? Well, that's where we look at the tabernacle from the standpoint of the very meaning of the symbology of the tabernacle. Now, as I said earlier, there are a lot of aspects to the tabernacle and to its furniture, the different things that are there, the different ways it's constructed. So this morning, because of the time, we can only focus upon that which most essentially demonstrates the meaning of the tabernacle in terms of enabling God to dwell with his people. And that is that which is found in the holy of holies of the tabernacle, the very place that uh, the high priest could only visit once a year, the very place where God was going to put, Moses instructed to put two things, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Now, sometimes they're treated as though they're the box and the cover, but very specifically, they are two distinctly made things that are in fact connected because of their theological meaning. There's the Ark of the Covenant, and then there's the mercy seat that's placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm going to state it this way in terms of the meaning of the ministry of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God, except by way of the tabernacle. Now, you see the reflection there, the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. What we need to see is the tabernacle is presented unto Israel as the way and the truth and the life in such a manner that no one can come to God except by way of the tabernacle. It is absolutely necessary, it is absolutely central, 
It is absolutely the thing that God has designed in order to address the problem of sin. And there are two things with respect to the tabernacle. There is the Ark of the Covenant, and then there is the Mercy Seat. Now, with respect to the Ark of the Covenant, uh, as soon as Moses comes off the mountain a second time, he is instructed by God to actually build an ark to put that second edition, same content, but that second edition of the Ten Commandments into that ark. Uh, we see this, in fact, in Deuteronomy. Uh, let's see. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Moses is describing what has happened almost 40 years earlier. He says, So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut two tablets of stone like the first, and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand, and God wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on that day, that day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets into the ark that I had made, and there they are as the Lord had commanded me. Now, as I mentioned earlier, what happened at Sinai happens nine months before the tabernacle's finished. So there's this ark, an, an unadulterated ark, just acacia wood ark that Moses has built himself, put the tablets in there. And that continues. It's inside the tent of meeting. But finally, a year later, almost nine months later, the tabernacle is completed. The tent of meeting is transformed into the tabernacle. And the ark that Moses has constructed is now taken by that artesian, um, whose name starts with a B, somewhere in there, that God had, had gifted to overlay it with gold and inlay it with gold and to construct, at that time, the mercy seat. So that is taken into the holy of holies and the tabernacle of God. Now, what does the ark represent? What does the two tablets of stone represent in the ark? It's called the ark of the testimony. The tablets are a testimony. Uh, they reflect God's expectations, right? God's covenantal requirements uh, enshrined in stone in the Ten Commandments. The only thing that God ever wrote directly, as Scripture says, with his own finger, Ten Commandments, and he did it twice. He did it twice because the Israelites broke the commandments during the time that Moses is on the mountain getting the commandments. The fact that there's a second edition of the Ten Commandments and that's placed into the ark really symbolizes the fact that God, God's requirements never change even if we break them. In some sense... The Ark of the Testimony, what's inside, represents the people of Israel as those who are required to keep these commandments, but who have broken these commandments. The, the Ark of the Testimony is not a testimony to their fidelity. It's not a testimony to their faithfulness. It's not a testimony to how great they have been before the living God. It's a testimony to their failure to keep the very thing that God requires of them but it's in the Holy of Holies. The testimony of their sinfulness is in the very Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, which represents the presence of God. 
but, but how does that work out? Because on top of the ark, God has designed what is called the mercy seat. Now the term mercy seat in the Hebrew reflects the concept of a sacrifice that's called a propitiation. Mercy seat and propitiation are so intimately connected that the symbolism of the mercy seat essentially means this. This is where the brokenness of the law finds a sacrifice that propitiates, turns away the wrath of a holy, holy, holy God and transforms the relationship from wrath and condemnation to mercy and reconciliation. And God told Moses, I will meet you, my glory shall meet you right above the cherubim who are at either end of the seat of mercy, at the mercy seat. God comes down, man is sinful, between our sin and a holy, holy, holy God is the mercy seat, which represents the propitiation, the sacrifice, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation. Now, this is what God is doing to handle the problem of sin. And, of course, the priesthood and all of the sacrifices and Passover and the Day of Atonement, all of those other aspects of this worship service terminate ultimately at the mercy seat, fulfilled at the mercy seat. It is the symbolism that the only way that a holy, holy, holy God can dwell with sinful people is at the very midst, the very focal point of the relationship between God and fallen human beings must be the accomplished mercy of God. Now, how does this connect to Christ? It connects to Christ because the tabernacle symbolically represents the person and the work of Christ. That all that Jesus was in the fullness of his deity and in the person of the incarnation, all that Jesus was as the God-man, and then all that Jesus did for the redemption of sinners is the fulfillment of what the tabernacle meaning and ministry was all about. Now, to appreciate that, we need to turn to the Gospel of John and to think about the writings of John because what John has done in the Gospel and what John has done in the book of Revelation ties these things in so very, very closely. Now, one of the problems is we read neither Hebrew nor Greek. And so there's word things going on in John chapter 1, John chapter 14, there, there are word things going on in several chapters of the book of Revelation that we don't catch because we're not naturally readers of Hebrew, not naturally readers of the Greek. Translators know this, and then translators are torn between, do I make the translation readable, or do I take the translation and say, I'm going to make sure they don't miss the connections between the Old Testament tabernacle and what we're writing here about Christ. And so when you read four, five, six different translations, you see some of them lean on the side of making sure you see the connection. Others lean on the side of saying, well, um, 
We're just trying to do good translation work and not trying to put any interpretation in it at all. So there are things that are missed. John chapter 1, verse 14. First, let me mention two words. There's a word in the Greek, like the same word, the translated word in Hebrew, that means tent. And this word shows up as both a noun and a verb. Now, we don't often use the word tent as a verb, unless you're getting your house fumigated because of termites. Oh, they tented your house, right? But in both the Hebrew and in the Greek, the particular word that means tent is used as a noun and as a verb. But most consistently, when it's used as a verb in the New Testament, it's translated as to dwell. But that's unfair to us sometimes as English readers. So John chapter 1, verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us for a while, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Okay? Now, what we miss there is this. We miss the fact that the word dwell is the word to tent. It's the word that means, if you found it in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, it would be the word to tabernacle. In the noun form, the word tent there is used as the word tabernacle again and again in the book of Exodus. So some translations and some footnotes will say, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us for a while, which is a perfectly proper translation of the Greek. There is no problem at all in translating it that way. Uh, Then you go to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, for instance. Um, verse 15. I'll read it from the ESV. Therefore, thinking of, talking about the saints who come out of the great tribulation, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, now look at how many words you have in your English translation, will shelter them with his presence. It's one word in the Greek, and it's the verbal form of the word tabernacle. It's the verb form of the word tabernacle. And he who sits on the throne will tabernacle them. The NIV says, who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Because the concept of tabernacle out of the Old Testament means the very presence of God And, of course, a tent is a dwelling and a shelter. So they translate it that way. Uh, The New King James says, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Because the word, which is to tabernacle, also means to dwell. The NAS says, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Yea, for the New American Standard at this point. See, translators all know the connection. But they struggle to know, do we make that connection for you or do you have to depend upon other people and commentaries and footnotes to make that connection? Which is more faithful? It's hard to say which is a more faithful translation. But I can tell you that as English readers and not reading the Greek in the original and not reading the Hebrew in the original, we miss connections that the Holy Spirit has designed John in his gospel and in the book of Revelations to make. 
These connections are real. These connections are there. The book of Revelation shows up three more times, this connection. We'll jump to what we read at the beginning of the worship this morning. Revelation 21.3. Behold the dwelling place of God. No. Behold the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Well, no. He will tabernacle with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Coming back then to John chapter 1, verse 14. When we are told that the Word became flesh, John is telling us this is the incarnation of God in Christ, and this is fulfilling the role that the tabernacle played within Israel. God comes down. God comes down to tabernacle with his people, to dwell with his people, and to be in their presence. Second word is the word, uh, in the Greek it's the word uh, meno, but that doesn't mean anything to you. But it's one of those words that means uh, both in a noun and in its verb form, it has to do with dwelling. So in the noun form, it means a dwelling place. In the verb form, it means to dwell. Now, we have several other of those English word pairs. We can say abide and abode. We can say uh, residence and to reside. Uh, we can say house and to house. Uh, we, we have these word pairs. The frustrating thing is that when we come to John 14, we have these word pairs in play. But our translators never stay consistent in terms of the word play and the word pair. For instance, John 14, verse 2. Uh, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many, King James Version, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. English Standard Version. In my Father's house are many rooms. NIV. In my Father's house are many rooms. But some other translations, maybe the New American Standard. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The problem is, is that later on, verse 17 and in verse 23, the, the verbal form of that word shows up again. So look at verse 17. In verse 17, we read this. It's about the Holy Spirit to come. ESV says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, wait, the NIV used the noun form as room. There are many rooms in my father's house. But now he's talking about dwelling. Why doesn't he simply say, why don't the translator say, You know him, for he rooms with you and will be in you. Maybe that sounds too, too much like college days or something. <laughs> Who's your roommate? Ah, Spirit of God. <laughs> I'm sure there's some of that concern to, to retain a more classical kind of language, a more formal kind of language, a more significant kind of language, not to make it too colloquial and that kind of stuff. 
but it does us a disservice because we don't see the connection as to what's going on between these words. Verse 23 is, in fact, even more significant because in verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now here's the noun form. But back in verse 2, the ESV had taken that same word and made it room. In my father's house are many rooms. But now we have that same word translated as home. The word itself simply means in the Greek dwelling place, in the noun. And the verb means to dwell. Uh, the King James, instead of having the word mansions, <laughs> as it does in verse 2, New King James says, make our home. God will make his home with us. New American Standard has basically make our abode. But they didn't use the word abide in verse 2. Now, what is my point in all of this? This language of dwelling and dwelling places is the other Hebrew word in the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Exodus, that's used all the time in connection with the tabernacle. So if you looked at this word in the Greek and you said, okay, what is this translating back from the Hebrew? Again and again and again. It would be this word that has this two forms, noun, verb, dwelling place and a dwell. Dwelling place and a dwell. God's abode where God abides. Uh, God's house where God houses himself. Uh, all the way up and down the line. Uh, God... Uh, God's residence where God resides. What is Jesus telling us in terms of his own understanding of himself as the fulfillment of the tabernacle? He has come into this world to redeem us, not to simply visit us and to go back to heaven. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's great love and God's great desire to dwell with us. I want you to understand, we as Christians are often paralyzed, or if not paralyzed, laden, heavily, heavily burdened because we feel our sinfulness. We feel our, our broken lives. We, we feel the burden of our sin in so many different ways. It's not just feeling guilty for sin. It's feeling shame. It's feeling like if God only really knew my heart, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Wait, he does know my heart. Well, if other people really knew what I was like, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And we will project and transfer that onto God. If people really knew what I was like. And so what happens when we do sin and we do feel guilty? Too often, the last place we run to is Christ. What we do last, we 
have been told by God himself with the, sac- with the tabernacle and with the incarnation of Christ. This is what you ought to do first. Why? Because besides being the fulfillment of the presence of God in terms of the tabernacle, Jesus is the mercy seat himself. How do we know that? Because the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, says this about Jesus. God set him forth as the propitiation in his blood. It is, in fact, perfectly appropriate, linguistically and theologically, to retranslate that verse this way. And God put forth Jesus as the mercy seat in his blood. The holiness of God meets the sinfulness that all of us possess in Christ, who is the very mercy seat of God. There's not a sin that you've ever committed that the Father has not had his Son fully and completely atoned for. There is not anything you've ever done that has outrun the mercy of God. There's not any sin that you've committed that can pluck you out of the eternal security of the hands of the living God that could ever stretch you beyond the infinite reaches of the grace of God. Because he loved you. He loved you so much that he sent his own son into this world, not just simply to rescue you from sin, but to actually dwell with you and by his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. I just want to close with words that I think express God's great desire to dwell with us and in us in such a powerful way. It's the words, Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3.17. The last part of that short little uh, prophecy of this Old Testament prophet where we read these words. The Lord your God is in your midst. Uh, Not just now and then. Not just coming to visit and then leaving. Not a weekend kind of time, constantly. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with singing. God has loved you and continues to love you this way. The tabernacle the great new era in God's relationship with his people during the Old Testament times. The Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of the tabernacle and the presence of God with us. Our Lord Jesus, the very mercy seat of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son, Jesus. In his name, amen.